Today we're continuing the series of what we believe, uh, or sorry, we believe. The last two weeks we, believe, we talked about our belief in the Word of God, that it is inspired by Him, uh, it has been preserved by Him, and it has been handed down uh, to us today, and that it is trustworthy based on His character and who He is and His ability, right, to preserve the Word. Uh, and we also, uh, last week we've been, we studied the Trinity, this mystery uh, that, that has been revealed, that Jesus Christ is God, that the Father is God, and that uh, the Holy Spirit is God. God exists in three persons eternally, uh, and the reason we come to that conclusion is because of the revelation of Scripture, how it unfolds. We do believe that God is one, according to Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we also believe that as, as the scripture unfolds, we see that the Father is God, we see that Jesus is God, and we see that the Holy Spirit is God. And so we trust in a God who is Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally God, uh, existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And today what we're going to do is, uh, this week and next week, we're going to focus in on two of the persons of, of the Trinity. That's, uh, we're going to talk about Jesus Christ today. And then next week, the Holy Spirit is the plan. Uh, and I believe, unless something changes and Pastor Jim does something else. But that's, that's what's going to uh, put that disclaimer out there. And so the statement that we want to affirm today is the fact that we believe in Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Jesus Jesus' name means the Lord saves. Yeshua means the Lord saves. And Christ is a title. The title means the anointed one. The title means the Messiah. So as prophecy unfolds throughout Scripture, uh, the, as, as God begins to prophesy through His prophets, uh, they reveal uh, or they speak of a Savior who is going to come or a Messiah who is going to come. And so if you read through the prophets, you see uh, mentions of glimpses of the Savior. Um, you see glimpses of the Savior through, uh, psalm, through the Psalms. Um, and, and, and many times it, it speaks of a Messiah that's coming. But we believe that the Messiah has come. We don't believe in a Messiah that is coming. We believe that He has come that he has lived on this earth, that he has fulfilled God's purposes, and that he's going to return. So we believe in a God who came, and we believe in a God who ascended, and we believe in a God who will return. Amen? And so as we look, uh, as we talk about Jesus, the very first thing we believe is that Jesus is God. Um, Jesus proclaims it himself. He says in uh, John 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. And if that was a reference over to, um, to Exodus, where God revealed himself to Moses as the great I am. And you know that it was blasphemous or, or you know that it was a serious matter for him to say before Abraham was, I am. Because immediately they, they went to pick up stones to stone him. Uh, and they concluded that he, being a man, declares to be God. You understand? So by his own profession, Jesus declares that he is God. And by the testimony of those who've put their faith in him. 
So if you look at the, the book of John, John is a testimony um, of one of his disciples, and he wrote down all that Jesus did, and his purpose, according to John 21, was so that those who would read this would come into eternal life, would believe and have eternal life. And what, what does he start with? He says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 3, he says that nothing that has been made has not been made, or I forget how it goes, the phrase goes, but the gist of it is that he created all things. Everything that has been made has been made by Jesus. So Jesus is, um, is eternal. Before Abraham was, I am. Micah 5, 2, I forgot to mention that. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, calls Jesus the ancient of days. So even before time began, Jesus was. That means that he is eternal. So Jesus does not come into existence uh, when he is born of the Virgin Mary. He's not, he doesn't even come into existence um, when he is conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary. He has eternally existed. That's what we believe about Jesus because of the testimony of Scripture and because of the testimony, uh, his own testimony. Amen. We also believe that Jesus took on humanity. Uh, he's God and he is man. 100% God, 100% man, truly God and truly man, right? Of, of the most essence, his essence is deity, but he's also a man. Uh, humanity. He took on humanity. And the passage that, that best shows us this, the deity uh, becoming humanity, the harmony of both, uh, is in Philippians chapter 2. Before we go into that, I just want to uh, give you context of Philippians chapter 2. This is, uh, Philippians is a letter written by Paul while he was in prison. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ and was imprisoned because of his constant testifying of who Jesus is and what he's done, namely that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross, that he was buried on the third day, or sorry, buried, and on the third day he rose again, and that he is exalted at the right hand of the Father, and he will return. And for this gospel, Paul had been imprisoned. And uh, before he was in prison, he had opportunities to go throughout all of the land, three missionary journeys. Uh, and in one particular missionary journey, he reaches the place of Philippi. And Philippi is in Europe right now. Uh, it's in the European part of, uh, of Turkey. Um, that's where, where it's located. And Paul's writing to them is different than his writing to other churches. Because this letter is filled with lots of affection and lots of rejoicing. There, there is a connection that Paul has to this church. That is, this church is very dear to him. And it causes him uh, rejoicing and, and gladness to, to know their progress in the faith, to know that the gospel is bearing fruit in them. Uh, this is the, the book where we get that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. We believe that. Uh, and so part of his letter and, and writing is 
to encourage them, to rejoice, to, to fo uh, focus their attention on what matters in Jesus. But there's also uh, a structure to the letters. There's doctrine often in Paul's letters, in the, like the first beginning chapters. And at the, the, the back end chapters are more practical things, things that they need to put into practice and take care of. And so what Paul does here in Philippians chapter 2 is that he doesn't... Uh, doesn't assume that even though this church has a good place in his heart, like he feels loving towards them, uh, rejoices over them, they still have their issues. And so he wants to, uh, wants to address their issue with, with a theological truth. And so, first of all, what's their issue? Their issue here, according to Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 4, let's read that. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my, there's that word joy, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So if the Church of Philippi was writing a what's on your mind uh, Facebook status, they would say, uh, ideally, they would say, we are of the same mind, we're having the same love, we're full, being in full accord, that's unity, and we have one mind. The overarching theme of verse 2, the status would read, we are just a unified church. That's what it would read, right? That would be the ideal. But that's not, in a sense, the case. Because if you look further, according to verse 3, he gives them an exhortation, and this is what he says to them. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What I find fascinating is, is that he says the big, the big thing that, that threatens any church's unity is the way that you feel about yourself. If you are selfish, if you are conceited, every, you know, smelling yourself like, yeah, I'm the best, right? That kind of attitude, that messes up the unity that the church could have. And a lot of times, you know, the easy thing would be like, yo, just change this. You need to change that. You need to stop being selfish. You need to stop being conceited, right? Those are the easy ways to look at it and say, or, you, or oftentimes when we discipline, can't you be like, right? Be like this. So we, we call a comparison into the picture. Well, Paul does none of that, right? He doesn't beat him over the head and say, this is what you should be. Get it straight. He doesn't then compare them to another church. What he does instead is appeal to their Lord and Savior as the example that they should follow. And the example that Jesus gives us, according to Paul, this is what he highlights. What we, I want to give you the context because there's theological depth in who Jesus is in this passage, but the context is a correction about this unity. You understand? So there's an issue of conceited and selfish ambition dri driven by selfishness and looking at, you know, everything revolves around me. And his, point, his perspective is, let me point you outward to see a better example of what you should be. So if you're going to attain humility, this is who you should look at. He says this in verse 5. 
have this mind among yourselves. So there's an attitude in which we should live, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's appeal to the church of Philippi, if you're going to overcome your selfishness and your vain conceit, just looking at yourself, focus on yourself, everything revolving on yourself, the way that you think about yourself is you're elevating yourself above others. You're here. Everybody else is down there. The way that you combat that is by looking at what Christ has done. And according to verse 6 here, we read that he, Jesus, preexisted as God. It says in verse 6 that who though he was in the form of God. So there's an attitude that we need to have. And we're looking at Jesus as our example of humility. And what does he do uh, in his humility? Although he pre-existed as God, that means that he is the one who is who, uh, one of infinite worth. He is the one who has eternally existed. He is the one who created all things. He is the one who sustains all things. He is the one that redeems all things. He has a sovereign will that will accomplish. And he has a will for your life and my life. This is the one we're talking about. The one who holds all things in his hands. He pre-existed as God. But he humbled himself. What did he do? It says here in verse 6 that although he pre-existed as God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You ever work with somebody and then all of a sudden they become a manager and it gets to their head? And then you're like, oh, we're friends, right? So let me just do this. And all the things you used to do with that person, all of a sudden he's got his eye or she's got their eye on you. And it's like, nope, you can't do that. I thought we were friends. Right? And so all of a sudden, you know, you, you have a hard time with what they're saying and they pull ranks. I'm the manager. Listen to me. You're like, oh, dang, the relationship has changed. Right? So what happens here, right? What they're doing there is they're pulling rank. Right? Like, uh, and sometimes rightly so. Like they have to do that because that's how the structure, the, the business is only going to work if you understand your place, right? And so um, in this case, what, God, what Paul is saying is that when we look at the humility of Jesus, what we need to see is that he pre-existed as God, but he didn't pull rank. He didn't consider that something to hold over our heads. He didn't do that. He didn't walk around the earth saying, I'm the son of God. You better bow down to me. No, everyone who listened to him had the ability to accept or reject him. 
And honestly, he didn't feel any type of way about it. I mean, I bet his compassionate heart felt some, something away about it, but he wasn't pulling rank to manipulate anybody into following him. And so Jesus, who pre-existed as God, he didn't pull rank. He didn't, uh, excuse me, he didn't count equality with God. That means he is equal. He is identical to God, a thing to be grasped. He didn't pull that down, and he didn't pull rank. Instead, what he did, according to verse 7, is that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. So think about our example of humility. That Jesus, who is God, didn't pull rank, but instead made himself or became in the likeness of man. And by doing so, he emptied himself. And that emptying is not to, to signify that he stopped being God. It's more of a, a point of value. He became lesser. Right? To be God is to be the creator. To be man is to be created. So that is a lesser, isn't it? It doesn't mean that humanity is worthless and, you know, you're a maggot. It doesn't mean any of that. What that means is that in light of who God is, becoming a man is lesser. And what did he do? How did he, how did he take on humanity? He took on the form of a servant. Not even a king who is a man. Not even a, a captain of the army who is a man but a servant of a man. And he exemplified this and he taught his disciples this. That in his humanity, he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. This is, his, this is Christ's example of humility. God coming man and as a man becoming a servant. And as a servant, serving God, surrendering to the will of God, but also surrendering, not surrendering to your will, but serving you. Because that is the will of God. Jesus exemplified this in John chapter 13, when uh, in the Last Supper, he's there, they arrive to the room, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. To wash someone's feet is... <laughs> In that household, the lowliest position. In that household, it was the lowliest position. So even in the rank of servants, like the dude at the bottom of the totem pole, that's the guy who did that, or the woman who did that. The washing of the feet. It was gross. I mean, we were at the Camp FAC. How many of you had blacker feet than when you came, right? I had like these black rings all around my feet. I had to like scrub it all in the shower, just take care of that, right? But think about that mixed with feces of all kinds of animals, all kinds of sewage running down the middle of the street, right? Like this is a lowly job. And so Jesus did it. The way that he lived out his humanity was the way of a servant. That is the hum humility that our Savior exemplifies for us. I mean, it goes even further, the humility that he exemplifies. It says that he, 
being found, according to verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His humility allowed him to surrender his life. His humility brought him to the place where not even his life was something that he would grab onto. He would give that willingly. And he said it himself, I give my life as a ransom for many. When questioned by, I believe, Pontius Pilate, he says, I take, I, you don't take my life, I surrender my life. So Jesus, and I think, I forget what chapter of John that was. But Jesus, even himself says, I'm surrendering my life. I give it. My dignity, my pride, my reputation, all of that comes under the banner of humbled before the Lord, servant of all. That's a big contrast, right? to how often we live our lives. Because, I mean, for better, not for better, first, for worse, the, the enemy's assignment on our families has been pretty effective. Many of us have grown up in families where we're lacking affirmation. Many of us grew up in families where the necessary influences of life, whether masculine or female influences in our lives were gone. And dissipated, and we're left in a sense because we had no affirmation, we didn't have that security that we were supposed to have as God's design for a family. Then we begin to live out our insecurities, we begin to live out of our pain. And part of that is if nobody else is going to make a name for me, then I'm going to make a name for myself. And you, whoever you may be, are not going to drag my name through the mud. I'm going to vindicate my name and I'm going to stand up for my name regardless. But that can get you into trouble. Because at that point, you are elevating yourself above others. Who wants to live life in competition to everybody else? I think that's part of what the burden that Jesus wants to release you from today. Like you're not in competition with anybody. And if you live that way, then I'm sorry. Like... Perhaps change your perspective. Then you'll be freer. That doesn't, that doesn't mean and give you an excuse to be lazy and not accomplish anything in life. I, no one wants to be satisfied with laziness. I mean, somebody probably does, or else there wouldn't be lazy people, right? But even the lazy person is selfish because everybody else caters to them, right? So you could be aggressive and be driven. And be that kind of person, like, oh, you're making a name for yourself. But oftentimes that's ridden with sin and pride, right? Pride, which is sin. And what Jesus shows us is, I'm not making a name for myself. In fact, I could appeal to my deity, but I'm not. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to become a servant. Jesus exposed himself to all the struggles that we faced. Living life as a human, I don't know about you, but my 34 years of life has been difficult. There's been great high points and great moments in my life, but there's been lots of low points. You understand? And so, like, 
the fact that Jesus would come and enter into that and face the things that we face, like, he's ride or die. And I want to ride or die with him. Right? So what kinds of things did Jesus experience as a human? Well, he grew in knowledge and stature. He came as a baby, vulnerable as he was. Grew in knowledge and stature, according to Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Jesus was tired. It says in John 4, 6 that he was weary from his journey. He was tired. I was tired yesterday from my journey to Camp FAC and back. That was only a 30-minute journey. Travel time. Jesus was, was thirsty. Almost had a Tyson lisp there. Jesus was. Jesus was thirsty. In John 4, 7, he approaches a woman at the well and says, Hey, can you give me a drink? There's thirst there. According to John chapter 11, verse 35, it says that Jesus wept. He cried. When it, a good friend of his died, that broke his heart. Even though he was going to raise him from the dead, it still broke his heart. Why? Because death is, wasn't supposed to be our experience. But sin came into the world, and so it is. Jesus also faced temptation. Forty days, forty nights of heavy lifting temptation. And not once did he buckle. He's our example of victory over temptation. So, to say that Jesus is a man and God doesn't mean that he lived more as God on earth than he did humanity. No, he really set limits on his deity. Because to be God is to be omnipresent. To be God is to be omnipotent, be everywhere and be powerful, all-powerful. But becoming a man limit him to space, limit him in strength, he took on these limits, right? Uh, and so he lived as a human being. But I would just tell you that he lived as a human being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is a different kind of human being. A different kind of human being. So if he lived, God pre-existing, Jesus pre-existing as God, taking on the form of a man, becoming lesser. And as a man, he became a servant, servant of all, servant of the Lord, humbling himself even to the point of death. What did that earn for him? What did that gain him? I know what it gained us, right? When he became obedient even to the point of death, that earned for us salvation of our souls. When he became obedient even to the point of death, that earned us forgiveness of sin, right? That afforded us forgiveness of sin. When he became obedient, even to the point of death, it afforded us reconciliation. What was lost when Adam and Eve's sin has been regained by Jesus Christ's victory, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his exaltation. And it also afforded us regeneration. There is a newness of life that happens inside of you. That the spirit that was severed in, in death, the spirit, you were born into this world with a dead spirit. 
Dead spirit, dead to God. Dead spirit, dead to his desires. Dead to his will. Right? An enemy of God because of your dead spirit. But in Jesus Christ, what, we, what he affords us is regeneration. A resurrection of that spirit that not only connects us to God, but allows God to live inside of us. So then that's why I'm saying that a spirit-filled Christian is a different kind of human being. Is a person connected to God. Is a person surrendered to the will of God. Desiring the, the presence of God in every sphere that they enter into. In every space. I want you here, God. You are here with me wherever I go. You are speaking. You are speaking forth through me wherever I go. You are helping me by your spirit be the servant that I need to be wherever I go. You're a different kind of human being, those who have accepted Christ, those who have been forgiven of their sins, those who have been uh, revived in their souls. You are different. You're not better. You're better off. <laughs> but you're not better than others, but you are different. And the reason that God made you different is so that he can continue making others different through you as you testify of what God has done in your life and as you lead others to your Savior, Jesus Christ, they have the opportunity to be different also. So all of this humility and all of this ser servitude and what does he gain? This is what Paul writes. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Like, if you want to exaggerate exaltation, that's the word. It's like elevate it and elevate it even more. That's, that's the Greek word. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it was a combination of like hype, hype. <laughs> it was incredible to look at that and see. He is exalted and he bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So as a servant, he didn't make a name for himself. The name was given to him. As a servant, he didn't make a status. He, wasn't, he didn't create his own status. A status was given to him. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father. He uh, was given the name that is above every name. And what happens with that name? The rest of us need to respond to it in one way or another. Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, say Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess. What are we confessing? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see that when, when you humble yourself, the Bible says humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up. So in your insecurity and when you want to make a name for yourself and when you want to live smelling yourself in this congregation and as a church, you do harm to the church. Amen. But when you humble yourself like Jesus did, God did not consider God's, uh, like he didn't pull rank, made himself a human being, not just the human being, a servant of a human. 
obedient even unto death, when you do that, the Lord exalts you. The Lord vindicates you. The Lord lifts you up. He does that. He does that. Disclaimer here, he's, you're not going to get the name that is above every name. That title is already taken. Jesus is Lord. It's never going to say John Eric is Lord. Nope. But I'm going to be exalted. I'm going to be lifted high. That's what he says. So I'm going to humble myself before him. And I'm going to humble myself before you. I'm not better than you. I'm here to serve you. You're not better than me. You're here to serve everyone around you. You're not doing the pastor's will. You're doing God's will. Right? So Jesus gives us an example of humility. And we need to have the same attitude. So what do we, how do we live when we have the same attitude as Jesus? Well, we live out our regenerated humanity, the new kind of humanity that we are, as a humble servant. And how do you do that? Well, you consider others better than yourself. Why would you do that? For the glory of God the Father and for the good of others. That's your call today. That's our call today. So I think it's interesting that Paul would not appeal to the other churches and tell them, hey, let me correct this in you by telling you to be better. No, he decided to correct it by pointing us to our Lord and the example that the Lord gave us. And in there, we learn a lot about Jesus, don't we? We believe in Jesus. We believe in the God who became man and was a perfect harmony of deity and humanity. But his humanity was not lived in rank. It was lived as a servant. That is the example that we have in Jesus. And he allows us in this newness of life to come before him. And today is Communion Sunday, and so we are, this table proclaims his death. He was obedient even to the point of, of death. And so before he died, he gave us, I forgot who was going to come. I think John, right? Come on up, John. And before he died, he gave us a way in which we should remember him. He gave, on the night that he did the, on, of the Last Supper, he took bread and he broke it. And he said to them, this is my body, broken for you. And then that same night, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of my covenant. Drink it in remembrance of me. When I look at these things, this is bread. It's not flesh. It's not skin and bones or nothing like that. It's bread. It symbolizes his body. This is juice. It's not his actual blood. It's a symbol of his blood. When we look at his body, 
The bread signifies his body broken, which gave us access into his presence. The blood signifies the purification that comes by the blood of Jesus. Purification of sins. And that's how I like to remember the, the table. The body gives me access. His blood purifies me.
thank you for your example of humility and we thank you for what that has meant for us today that we have been purified forgiven reconciled made new in you and so Lord this makes me just anxious to see you face to face so excited to see you Jesus one day but I thank you that I see you at work in our lives I hear your spirit speaking to us and so we thank you for that and Lord I just want to seal what you have accomplished in this place that you've called us to humility like you were and you've also called us to take on your yoke and your burden and to find rest for our souls in you. So I thank you for that. And as we live our lives this week, we want to live humbly before you. And I bless Truvine, everyone here, and those who have were here earlier, I bless Truvine, all that is Truvine, to walk humbly before you, God, and to live as servants. In the name of Jesus, amen this time we again thank you for choosing to worship with us we invite you to enjoy a fellowships a refreshment with us uh, please stick around talk with one another and bless one another with each other's presence god bless you have a good week